Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I am your host, B. Chavez, and as always, I'd very much like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in and listening yet again this month. This show is, as many of you have already pointed out before it's even posted, is a, a day or two late for that. I do apologize. That reflects nothing other than the fact that I am very, very busy and uh, business is good, and I thank everyone for that. Uh, however, it just makes a a little difficult to do some of these uh, extraneous and uh, not 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 to uh, devalue the show, but some of these freebie type things. I don't make anything from this radio show, uh, other than of course it is advertising and connects me to people and potential clients. So, but other than that, I don't uh, I don't sell ads. I don't you know generate revenue through this show. So, at times it is my lesser priority. Although I really do love it and I enjoy interacting with all of you. So I apologize for the slight delay, and I will try to minimize that in the future. Also, in the apologetic tone, um, many of you have pointed out that the quality, uh, the audio quality, the recording quality is oftentimes not very good. And sadly, this show will do nothing to uh, to enhance that uh, opinion. Uh, this show, the actual recording was bad enough that I had considered shelving it entirely. But um, the, the material was just so good, and the, the, the people which I was speaking to were so good, and I'll introduce that in a moment. Uh, I just really felt compelled to spend a little extra time, try and clean up the audio with filters and editing methods, and try and bring it to you. And uh, I have done that, and as kind of bad as this is, it's measurably better than the original recording. So uh, I apologize for the quality, but I don't apologize for my success in improving it. So all of that said, all of that behind me, um, no real preamble with this show. I really have nothing to talk about current event wise or any of that. Uh, I will address that in the extra show coming uh, on the 15th of the month. Uh, there are a few things out there, but nothing that needs to be covered here. So really, we're just on to the guest. So today's guest and part of the reason for the poor audio quality is because it is guests plural. We have two, and we did it via a, kind of a party line arrangement, and uh, that caused a little degradation in the audio. But our guests were kind of a duo, kind of a tag team, kind of a, oh, bad pun, but kind of a master blaster scenario that culminated in a win at the junior World's Strongest Man. Some of you may not even know that there is such a thing, but there is junior World's Strongest Man. Junior referring to uh, the age as in under, it's either 23 or 24. I probably should have researched that first. But nonetheless, it is junior in terms of age. It's kind of a collegiate uh, age bracket for a World's Strongest Man contest. And the winner won the heavyweights in the junior World's Strongest Man. And that person is Nick Hadge. Uh, Nick is uh, very, very well-known, very popular uh, East Coast strongman. He's very exceptional in every way. Uh, and the other half of the guest pairing today is someone who's been with us a few times before, and that's Andrew Triana. And Nick and Andrew are kind of lifelong friends. They've been training partners for a very long time, and they're both very good athletes in their own right, but in terms of 
paths taken, um, Nick has taken more of a, you know, hands-on athletic approach. Not that he is not educated in the ways of strength and all of that. He certainly is, but he's taken kind of more of a hands-on competitive approach. And Andrew, who is also a good athlete and, and very competitive and probably will win some national and world titles along the way, but he has definitely taken much more of an intellectual approach. And so together, being such good friends, being so well acquainted, being having such high access to one another, you have this really, really high intellectual acumen and this really, really high work capability and hands-on acumen. And together, almost as one beast, they have created just an essentially a factory for effective strongman. And as I said, it culminated in a win at the WSM, which is you know essentially about as good as it gets. Um, so knowing how well they work together, knowing how uh, you know, really brilliant and intricate Andrew's training pl- programs and methodologies are, I just really thought it would be interesting to bring them to you together in kind of a, this is how we did it, this is how we communicate. So you're going to get a lot of information in this interview. My suggestion is... Don't necessarily listen to the information as, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to run and do that. I'm going to start doing that particular drill. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Although you could take that away. My real suggestion is try and absorb how well these people work together and try and absorb the method and, and style of feedback from one to the other. One says or does this, the other digested and makes these adjustments. And usually it's not adjustments on the fly, as they'll talk about. It's more of adjustments for the next round of training. So it's watch what happens now. Make notes. Don't deviate. Live up to the program. But I've gathered all this information, so now I'm going to change the program slightly so it'll be better next time. Um, and also, in the background, Andrew's going to really hammer the concept of just kind of not just developing work capacity, not just developing strength, not just developing coordination, not just developing technique in the individual events, but also developing the ability to just be mean, to work when you don't necessarily want to, to work under fatigue, to plow through the barriers that hold other people back. And and, and Andrew is very much of the opinion that that is a trainable trait, a learnable skill. Uh, I happen to agree with him, and I think he does a really good job of explaining how he coached Nick into to doing that, into being that person, which, again, ultimately culminated in a win. So I really think that's what you should listen for here. Um, if you want to kind of digest the training ideas, I strongly suggest you go back and listen to some of the earlier interviews with Andrew, where he really talks about these training concepts in more specifics, which will then elucidate why it's going on in this, you know, WSM preparatory type training, because just to hear it, it just sounds maybe a little random, maybe a little Wow, I don't know why that's happening. But if you go back and listen to him talk about, you know, a lactic training and, you know, aerobic capacity and all of these things, then you can begin to see the pattern that is the madness that is, you know, Andrew's training style and and something that I really think everyone could benefit from. But I really believe you need a much broader background to really absorb it. But here, I think you can really get the interpersonal dynamic of how two people could and should communicate 
to create one machine that does nothing but train and win. So with no more from me, um, we'll break away. We'll run a few of uh, a little uh, Evil Genius sports performance ads and some of the silliness that I stick between. And when we come back, we will be on the phone with the two-headed monster that is Nick Hedge and Andrew Triana that culminated in a win at Junior WSM. This is Sports Performance Radio. Don't forget to sign up for the SPR and Evil Genius Sports Performance Newsletter via the Team Evil GSP website. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, here we are with another awesome strongman interview. This one's going to be really exciting, interesting, and different, and both different and difficult. Because what we have on the line is athlete and coach. And hopefully we're going to be able to bring to you a little bit of real-life uh, knowledge on how the interaction between athlete and coach does work and really, really should work. So what we've got is our good friend Andrew Triana, who's been with Sports Performance Radio in the past, done a number of really, really great high-end science depth interviews and, and talks. And we have with him Nick Hatch, who is, if you don't know, super, I'll let him introduce himself and his accolades, but super high caliber strongman. And the two of them work together to create long-term periodized programming to excel at the sport of strongman. So what we're hoping to do is show you how that synergy comes together and what real programming should look like. So, guys, are you there? Yep, glad to be back. So, so uh, before we get too far, most of our listeners know Andrew. So, uh, Mr. Hatch, go ahead and tell us who you are, what you've done, and, uh, you know, just kind of give us a little quick background. Uh, I know you've had quite the competitive years, so go ahead and throw that out there. So we, we got a kind of a, a, a bedrock from which to start. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I've been competing as strongman for about five or five, six years now. Um, I won teenage nationals back in 2013. And, uh, I've been competing in the middleweight 231 for a long time and then I went up to heavyweight in the past few years and I've been competing in the open heavyweights and then the junior division this year. So, uh, today, we're going to talk about a few different trainable behaviors as well as the actual training program. So to begin, I just want to introduce um, grit. Uh, it comes from a psychology background, and it's a positive, non-cognitive trait based on individual's passion for a particular long-term goal or end state, and it's coupled with powerful motivation to achieve that respective objective. So being that's non-cognitive, I want to pose the question, is this behavior a trainable trait? Is it something that training can impose a stress that causes a grip adaptation in the mindset of the athlete? So I just want you guys to bear that in mind the whole time as we talk about the training and uh, the weird encounters Nick really had uh, through training as things changed last minute based on what country it was in or the events. So uh, Nick's going to take that. Yeah, so USS Nationals was an awesome, awesome time. Just barely made it up with that. And then there wasn't too much information released between, like, then and what was, like, what exactly that meant by winning that. I knew I was invited to another show, but there was really no specification. It was said to be a junior world championship, but I didn't really hear anything other than that. And then, uh, well, a week later, 
there's news that the Masters is going to be held in Ireland um, in like about a month, and there's potential that that's going to be where my show is as well. As well, and I got the news on that, and they're like, "Hey, this might be your show in Ireland, and this might be the events list." And upon the events list, I mean, it was max log I thought I had to do, so I was training for like a one rep max log and a few other specific things. But uh, yeah, I got kind of uh, twisted, and then. I found out it wasn't that, and it was going to actually be like two months later instead in September. The events list is going to be completely different. So, kind of, I wasn't really sure what the events were, and it was tough really not training unspecific, not really knowing where to take the training from there. So, it was tough. And you found out the events were four weeks out? Um, I think it was five weeks. Okay. So, so for the World Championship, you actually only got the events truly hammered out five weeks before the, the, the actual date of the event? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, and honestly, to me, that's crazy because um, over, like, in America, at least, you know the events long before then, but when I actually got to the show and talked to the other competitors, they said that it was common, it was common thing for, like, the overseas like competitions in that some people don't even know the events of two weeks out and I, I thought that was crazy so along the journey from a transition between like national to international that was definitely one thing I've learned is you kind of just have to be ready for anything because you don't really like you, you might not know the events until two weeks out so and I think like we put a lot of stress into what exactly the events were going to be and I like almost stressed too much about it when you guys just kind of be ready for anything in the sport, so that's what I learned from that. Well, I, I certainly have a deep sympathy for you because, the, as you said, the macabre, the normal standard of a North American athlete is lots of preparation and specificity. But um, something that my old uh, uh, colleague in radio, Mike Johnston, always pointed out is the original concept, and I know this isn't what you're born into, but us old guys, the original concept of strongman was rather kind of that surprise, holistic, we might test your strength any damn well we please kind of attitude. And uh, I, I'd certainly, I'm smiling because I'm kind of like, yeah, that's real strongman t- 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 to me. And, and I know that's not where, you know, your mindset is, certainly not with a, you know, money event like a national champion or a world championship, but it, it's still pretty interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And uh, it was just, it's completely different. Like I said, in the international, those guys don't know for two weeks out and they're competing also. Like, some of them, one of my, one of my roommates from the Netherlands said he competes like once a month sometimes for like more than half a year. So that's, those guys are competing all the time. Like, oh, it's, it's ridiculous. So Nick's lack of event knowledge and the surprise of what the event list was when we actually found out uh, was almost as stressful to me as a coach. Because, uh, like you said, the American athlete, neither of us has ever been exposed to the thought of a three-day contest, uh, much less only having one press over the three days and there being eight events. So that definitely posed a new uh, aspect of programming to deal with. So before we get into the very specific prep, I'm going to talk about the two-week alarm phase Nick had to begin uh, his final mesocycle. So that was transitioning out of uh, an aerobic phase, uh, hypertrophy phase after nationals, and then 
haphazard two-week peak phase, like you said, we worked for the Ireland being four weeks away. So basically, uh, that was a haphazard peak phase that led to a transition that led to this seven-week mesocycle. So my goal for the first two weeks of training were to spike the growth capacity further because training had muddled last month, uh, increase unilateral proficiency, try planar and force production, and fill in the gaps as far as weaknesses in uh, his strongman game goes. So like you said, it was great. So the way I did this was actually almost exactly in the order I read. So his very first movement prep um, exercise, I would call them, for each day was a mentor. So I'll read off uh, the one he highlighted, and I did as well, as one of the most important parts of his first two-week at one phase. So it was called unilateral fight club. So one repetition was denoted as a 100-foot power push with no weight, single right squat, which was denoted as uh, a four-inch deficit in which he would step off the box, controlling himself eccentrically to the floor with his other leg, and then using predominantly his medial arch and adductor to pull himself back up to the box um, from that four-inch deficit. Um, next was Another 50-foot prowler push, repeat the same squat protocol, uh, that was three reps on each leg as I described. Another 50-foot prowler push, and uh, one top-down to your strength on each side. So that's just starting standing and eccentrically controlling yourself to the floor. So like I said, that was one rep, and that included 200 feet of empty prowler pushes, six single-leg squats in eccentric tempo on each side, and one top-down Turkish shadow on each side. And in his first week, he performed this twice for two sets of four reps. So that's quite uh, a specific amount of volume to hit him with, especially only using two movements. But the reason I chose these two movements was because I've been training with Nick for four years. So as far as coaching goes, I had the best possible assessment I could make of that, including his lifestyle. So that also played into how I programmed his resistance training. Because um, USS Nationals ended our college career, essentially two weeks after graduation. We competed, Nick started a new job, which included more waking hours, I believe it was six. Uh, increased general life stress, physical activity outside of training. So he was doing a lot of personal training on movement uh, for a large number of hours. Uh, environmental stress due to driving through Boston, dry, uh, I think you said you were commuting three hours each week, was it? For three hours each day? About that, yeah, because doing the gym, home, work, yeah. So, uh, that also posed a small problem in program. So, the reason I gave him so much volume for his first movement prep exercise was to honestly primarily eliminate any preliminary stress he was bringing into the session with him. Um, due to life and like what I mentioned prior, because what I've noted in athletes is a large amount of aerobic work is very difficult a high amount of volume and a small amount of time really, um, really gives a feeling of almost euphoria in that. And obviously uh, that is associated with both enzymes and like anti-related pathways. But um, it just acted as a buffer for him to be able to actually have a um, good foundation starting training versus coming in uh, really sympathetic and in a bad posture from personal training uh, for five, six hours at a time. Uh, his next movement 
uh, was a, like I said, unilateral proficiency, and this came in the form of a biometric. So uh, he had a unilateral broad jump into a bilateral broad jump. So unilateral each leg to potentiate the broad jump on the third jump. Um, so almost a triple jump scenario. Excuse me? Almost a triple jump scenario? Essentially. It's the same, uh, I guess you could say the same amount of work you would do with a triple jump, but essentially splitting it up into a unilateral right, unilateral left, and then a bilateral. So, oh, so unilateral like skipping triple jump. Yes, yeah. So I guess you can call it a triple jump. I, I actually, I'm... I'm I, I, my my plyometric knowledge is very uh, archaic, very old, and there was a lot of any time there was unilateral stuff, like Dr. Fred Hadfield and uh, Charlie Francis and those people would refer to that as a skipping modality. Um, I get actually, although I do say broad jump for the ease of the athlete to understand for ease of communication, I would actually classify it as a hop. So okay. I mean. If you want to get into Charlie Francis, hop just has less connotation of what they said about skipping. But, uh, no, okay. you're right. It is not a typical broad jump. It is, in fact, a hop. Okay. I, I wasn't, it, I, I'm really more interested in the, the, mo- the training model than the specifics, but I just, whenever I hear something that I don't actually know, I get kind of excited. And I'm like, oh, tell me about that. I get, so a lot of this, well, a lot of this whole radio interview thing, is a little less for the public than you might think. A lot of it's just to pacify my own interests, and, and that would be a perfect example of it. <laughs> well, I was trying to get a picture that uh, Nick was doing uh, very, what seemed like weird plyometric protocols in an effort to still build a total amount of force production produced via plyometrics for the set, but without really taxing them. Like I said, a lot of stress, a lot of driving, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of changes in events. I, as a coach, I don't have that much stress to really play with right now, as I would like to keep it for a world strong snake. So, essentially, this two-week alarm phase did its purpose, and uh, I think Nick's going to talk about how he felt about the alarm phase and what led into week three. Yeah, the alarm phase, that's a, it was an alarm phase. It was really tough getting back into that kind of training, to be honest. Each session was incredibly difficult. I mean, I don't, I adapt kind of slowly to plyometrics especially. So week one was brutal for me. I could barely even finish each session. Uh, week two, wow. I was kind of getting used to it a little bit more, kind of get, getting a little bit better slow down because, I mean, the, the unilateral play club, the power push to the squat, setting that up was kind of just like, although doing it efficiently at first. So once I really got to groove down and, that to go through it was good in that sense, but yeah, the the first few weeks really just plyometrics were tough to get used to. Now, now just as a curiosity, because again, the two of you work together so systematically and smoothly, some of the listeners may not necessarily have as much of the background as they could. Are you, uh, are you, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? Do you have a high aptitude for force production plyometric stuff, or is that something that is problematic for you, and this was extra challenging. I'm, I'm trying to just lay a foundation for, you know, you say it was hard. I mean, was it hard in terms of, wow, that was just a butt pile of work and that was hard to do, or was it hard in that it's not something you're natively good at? No, it is something I am natively good at. And that probably was why it was so hard, because, I mean, 
I was just really giving everything to it, and at first I tried to, like, I, I almost tried too hard, and there was so much volume where I almost got burnt out too quickly, and it was kind of like just adapting to that kind of training where it's going to be prolonged, prolonged, just sets like that, prolonged numbers. I've never been exposed to that much volume, essentially. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, now we're going to talk about week three. And week three was kind of when we were transitioning. He he sent me an email with like a set of rules. It was li- it was different than your standard like weekly update from Andy, where it's here's your exercise, do this sets, do this reps. He said physical deload as needed, but work on the things that you feel like are your weaknesses within parameters. I'll give you below. This is more of a mental hop hop before shit gets specific again. It's a long and mentally taxing contest season, so. I've been actually neglecting to mention that our contest season actually started the December prior. So, uh, Nick is on week, in, or month nine rather at this point, of a straight periodized program with multiple peaks and nothing other than a transition week in between training. Uh, so at this point, it's been a long road. Yeah, and this was our first, like, or sorry, not first, but it was last with deload before we really kicked into gear again, so it was kind of my last time to just, my last deload, and the rules were just aerobic movement prep every time you train, practice and the session, hit speed log one day of the week, hit some eccentric only curls, and leave the session feeling uh, mentally clearer each day. I definitely think that's what I did for um, the aerobic movement prep every time. I kind of had fun. I, I wanted to stray away from the unilateral play club and all that stuff a little bit because it was just so taxing for me. So I kind of wanted to play around with my own thing. So I did uh, one thing where I would just have a kettlebell, really light kettlebell, and it would just hit a few movements that I didn't feel were too fried or too overly worked on me, whatever I could do because... There's so many variations, so I did three exercises and hit them for like unilateral, all unilateral, where I did 12 each side, like 12 reps for as many rounds as possible. It would be, it would go about a minute and 32 minutes of just straight work, so I did a lot of aerobic movement back in that sense, and the eccentric only uh, curls really helped a lot release tension in my elbows, and because I was I was going for a max log and that kind of thing, so it was a good uh, rest for that. Yeah, then we found the event out, and it was like, okay, game time, this is what we got to do. Strap down, and we got extremely specific, and uh, you said, do anything that you're just going to be ready to can, drop, and then get specific, like, don't overdo it, so that's what I did. So that's going to lead us into the subject for order that I hear about. Um, this leads me as coach with weeks four through seven of the seven-week mesocycle to work with. And my immediate thought is I have three days, eight events, six of them are which are really the same event because uh, they're all really heavy carries or deadlifts. And there's like two deadlifts. Uh, so it's essentially six of the same event over three days, one unilateral press out of the blue, and then uh, a stone so, I, my biggest programming moral for these last three weeks was just getting bang for my buck as far as 
uh, I guess you could say, points towards a good piece. So I'm going to talk about what I mean by that. Um, there were three goals that I really defined as the essential adaptations Nick needed to make in order to be world's strongest. The first one I'm going to talk about, uh, I call substrate flexibility. There's a lot of different terms for it, but essentially it's the ability to produce a high amount of force with your ATP-CP system, and then to recover aerobically, and then produce a similar or potentiated amount of force production. Again, this is extremely essential, obviously, in the fact that you've been competing three days in a row with six very similar events and two outlier events. So he needs the ability to do the same essential motor pattern with an extreme amount of force because it was a very heavy contest. Rest, recover, and somehow be able to do it again. Um, the second goal was generalized strength, and I put unilateral and bilateral. So like I said, um, most of the contest had a moving portion of it, and that moving portion was very heavy. And since, uh, since six of the events were so similar, I was able to generalize it to one basic motor pattern that in strongman obviously is going to be the hip hinge style, whether it be on one or two legs. So uh, I coined the second goal as generalized strength on one and two legs. Uh, and the third one is what I brought up earlier, and it's grit. Because when it comes to this high level of a contest, everyone's very close in strength, everyone's pretty equally shocked, I'm sure, about what the events are, and everyone's going in on essentially even playing field, because they're all 0.1% of the population. So there's really an undefiable difference between who wins and who takes second, unfortunately. So that term, grit, is what I use our third triangle. And the way I actually approached that triangle was through one of my personal morals in programming, which is um, deviate more and reap more. And that's a simple like stress adaptation concept. Like the harder you can essentially push yourself and survive, the more you can theoretically get out of it. Um, so what I did was I used methods like cluster sets, um, repeatability sets, so like the ability to produce high amounts of force in like let's say a triple, even though it's at 83%, he only has 60 seconds rest and he's performing 10 seconds. So something to that effect when I say repeatability. And then when I say grit, I mean, like I said, long movement prep sets. They say where they were really passing and he's doing it close to a thousand feet of, uh, empty power pushes, like 30 or so unilateral movements on each leg by the end of the movement from the world. So that's specifically is something I wanted to train, the ability to produce a similar motor pattern, like I said, with a amount of force, recover aerobically, and do it for a long time. So I think Nick will attest when he goes over his view of the program. Uh, that one set of movement prep and any athletes know it takes about 10 minutes at least, and that's literally one bout. Um, passing single bouts of exercise. So essentially I would have Nick, uh, work up to one contest standard, uh, lift, but it wasn't the contest event. So for example, we highlighted a truck pull session he did, where it was one extreme bout of 80 feet, Rest 15 seconds, 80 feet, rest 15 seconds, 80 feet. And Nick, I believe, used a 500 pound tire on turf for this. So you can imagine the friction on that. 
So that's what I mean by passing single bounds of exercise uh, with contest standards. And then lastly, it was monotony. Uh, I trained grit through monotony because from week four to seven, they had almost the exact same protocols, but they were just changed ever so slightly to move them in the direction I wanted. So, a few specifics I wanted to point out on that were the cluster sets he did on deadlift on week five, I believe. Just give me one second to verify that. So, week six, actually. He had um, one heavy single that was auto-regulated to be at least 700, but no more than 745. And then uh, three sets of one rep, the rest 15 seconds, one rep, the rest 15 seconds, one rep. And he increased each set um, from 675 all the way to 695. So uh, Nick, I believe, finished his program, or in context, he just missed 850, pulled 815. We never went above... I believe they pulled 735 on that day. So that is a testament to the amount of stress he was under. Uh, just his training split alone for the week. It was day one of training, which was uh, an aerobic movement prep that involved no running, just to save his shins and uh, his lower leg. Uh, GHR did the 10G his deadlift, deadlift, and then eccentric GHRs to further work after. That was followed by one day of rest and three days of event training in a row, in which he did um, that unilateral flight club for one set totaling 1,200 feet, um, just one bounce count, twice, and the movement club I mentioned earlier once. And uh, he progressed uh, from that unilateral jump I talked about earlier to a depth jump on his final week. Essentially, the setup for each of those three days was movement prep and a lactic capacity movement to start. So on two days, he jumped, and on one day, he threw. Um, essentially, he had two or three events, and it was broken up into either one single bout of exercise and two clusters, or two single bouts of exercise and one working straight set. So... Nick is now going to go over what it was like to go through all that peaking aspect uh, as an athlete. And keep in mind, I did save the last week. We're going to go over his final week of training by itself. Uh, Before you bring Nick in, can I ask a question in regard to that? And it's, it's actually very specific. It's very specific to a guest I just had who talked very briefly um, off, off uh, recording about some neurological issues. Do you find any issue with that level of uh, movement prep, which you could say is code for essentially for warm up? You know, I, I realize it's far more complex and far more intricate than that. But in general, it's a systematic, systemic warm up to to do all these you know good things under the hood to get ready for whatever the true you know loading protocol is. Um, do you find any problem with that level of warm-up and then transitioning immediately into a plyometric-based? Do you find any neurological down-regulation or up-regulation? Or, or are you, in fact, counting on that? Is that part of the protocol? Ah, so I'm going to answer your question in two different ways. <laughs> so the way I see movement prep at this stage of the game, meaning this final phase of training, uh, you really good at it at this point. And the... Neurologically taxing portion of it, 
I found by going through it is largely behavioral. Although there might be some down regulation as far as maximum force production in the plyometric, it is not enough at this stage in the game at least to actually tax that plyometric. So when I implement this movement prep, uh, it is typically not followed by a legitimate plyometric for at least 12 weeks. Okay. So uh, that allows for uh, sufficient time for him to neurologically adapt. Although I will admit there is probably some down regulation, but it is not enough to not get an adaptation properly out of the plyometric. And um, also for that reason, he has um, that other movement prep that I mentioned that was no running or any type of uh, movement of that sort, still aerobic. I program it differently. It's actually meant to potentiate his plyometrics and throws. So there's really only two days out of training week that I would say where his movement cut could potentially inhibit his plyometrics. Uh, because the other two, the way I program them, they're actually potentiating the plyometrics. So that is kind of how I balance it. And as we talked before, there's nothing wrong with doing some work on the fatigue. So I don't exactly mind Nick doing a slightly down-regulated plyometric twice a week, just because I, A, I know he's in good enough shape, and B, as he's going to talk about, we went over a very large behavioral aspect of his arousal curve and how to affect that. And that, I feel, was uh, the behavioral end helping him uh, do the plyometrics better after the long taxing movement. Interesting. I, I knew without without even beginning to ask, I knew that you had already considered the concept and had something in play that wasn't coming across, you know, to me, much less probably to the listeners. So I just I just felt I needed to play the devil's advocate there and coax that out. So I I, I appreciate that. Oh, no, of course. It's my pleasure. You know I'm discussing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's good stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm not nearly knowledgeable enough on that uh, transmutative type stuff, transitioning from one thing to another. And so I'm really desperate to get the skinny from, you know, the true insiders like yourself. So I'm I'm really, uh, I'm really uh, probably asking more about it than is necessary for the context of this talk, but I'm just, it's really interesting to me. So I, I do, well, I, uh, I apologize by way of, I, I'm not really sorry. <laughs> just to give you a little teaser, um, if you understand the AMP pathway and how it leads to ATP production ultimately down the line. If you look at it through the right lens, there's really two different mechanisms that can increase ATP production. And uh, I'm just going to cut it there and I'll bring that to another podcast for another time. Absolutely. Okay, so, so on with Nick's, imp- Nick's impression of this hideous adventure you put him through. Well, it was an, it was an, it was incredible. Um, yeah, we we scored through sits for a whole other beef. I knew the events, and it was it was game time. So the biggest thing was just learning the arousal curve. Essentially, what I would do is with the deadlift. So say on the deadlift day with the GHR, and then the de- I would do so, I would do some correctives, and then I would do a little bit of activation. And then I would hit a big lift, and then I would bring it back every time. So it was, I had 20 seconds between each uh, set, with the 10 sets of one, and it was just 
it was a big shocker to really just kind of be able to do that many reps at that high of volume and just uh, it was. Now, what what intensity is that? You're doing you're doing ten sets of singles with literally essentially no rest between them. I mean, us 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 out of shape powerlifters literally take twenty seconds between reps in a set of three. So you're essentially doing these with no rest. At what intensity is this bar loaded? I'm not sure what the percentage is, but it was 680, so it was pretty heavy. It, my nervous system at that point was shot, too, so it was tough. Uh, I just want to interject quickly. I want to say Nick's ability to – I was uh, I saw the video from the session, and Nick's ability to reproduce force uh, at that load with such little rest, I think so far that was a direct uh, effect from the movement set prior. From the glycotic sensitivity of that – style of training previously, is that what you mean? Yeah, from the medley where we, uh, the one that did involve the running, it was a multiple, it was a few exercises, it was boom, 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 rest, boom, 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 rest, and one of them actually, the, uh, it ended with the two, two reps of a thruster with 60 pound parallels in each arm, that was like, kind of like the finisher, the big power move, and I feel like that being like the last exercise that really helps translate a lot of just a lot of force through time. So it felt good. It was awesome. Must really just have a a, a genetic and then purely training enhanced uh, potential to just be ridiculously psychotic. If I can't I can't fathom that workload in that structure. Um, yeah, I mean we had. Like on one of my days, I had four sets of PVC on a duck walk, and just to get that duck walk, I mean, strong man with this stuff, especially training by yourself. I'm going from an, uh, I'm not training with Andy anymore. I mean, it was a big team I had at school, and training was incredible with all those people that you go to training by yourself and setting up all the equipment by yourself, and that's honestly some of the biggest battles. You're hitting multiple events in one day, I'm hitting, you know, the duck walk, Circus dumbbell and wheelbarrow all in one day. You gotta set that up by yourself. So taking that down, it's it's all it's tough. There's a lot of a lot of volume. What's the uh, what what roughly is your total time frame from the beginning of movement prep to the final you know wrap up? What what what's the total training time per session? Um, probably about three hours. Honestly, it was wow. it was getting getting pretty crazy. And it was the clusters that was really uh, some of my favorite, like uh, especially on the tire flip. For the clusters I had, it was it was like three reps, rest ten seconds, one rep, rest one rep for multiple sets. But the cluster sets is really where it gave me that like boom 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 freak out. All right, bring it back, recoup for a few seconds, get your mind right, figure out what you need to do. But honestly, at that point, it turned into just straight skill work. It was it was all about just being specific and learning that skill. So when it comes down to something so specific, it's little minor changes that you just have to keep your head right, you know, in between the in between the reps. So that's why I like the clusters. It's boom, you hit something really heavy, boom, it messes you up. You said, all right, what can I do within like to think about within these next few seconds that I could for the next rep, it's like, all right, this is what I need to do. Boom, hit it, 
Alright, that rep just went a little bit better. Now I have a few more seconds to think about that. And then I get to do another rep. So it's like, okay, what did I like on that? What didn't I like? And it becomes like every rep is just like almost an experiment. And it's just like, that's when you're truly building your craft. And that's when it really turns into stronger. And clusters are incredible. Those are some of my favorite parts of the whole thing. So not, not, you know, just to reword in slightly different language for the listeners, you're not only training the physical aspect of being strong enough, fit enough, and what have you, to turn this tire or do this deadlift, but you're also training yourself psychologically and emotionally to autocorrect within that incredibly small rest period. So while you're physiologically recovering, you're psychologically preparing for the next bout. Exactly. It's pretty much just a game of adapting. You just have to adapt to... There's always going to be a weight. There's always going to be something that's going to take you down. And with that, you get to find your weaknesses. You get to find out what the main thing is. Okay, this is the first step in the course of like correct, corrective action. And yeah, just every rep just becomes you just kind of pile it down. Right, but so. to be able to again to be able to compact all of that into a 15 second rest period, you know, the analyzation analytical thinking, critical thinking, and problem solving that needs to take place in 15 seconds uh, is truly something I would assume you have to practice. That has to be a developed skill. That's what I had an incredible translation to uh, my competition day. Is It literally just felt like another day of training, and it just felt, I just felt ready for it. Uh, it literally, that's what, that's, what train, that's what a competition is. You have no time to think about it. You just have to do it. And if you can end up mimicking it, yeah, the training literally just mimics competition day so well. It was incredible. That's interesting. That's that's a, a considerably different way to think of it. I think most people, I know most people's contest prep is purely uh, targeted toward the physiological ability to do something with very little... Uh, predication on that emotional, psychological component, uh, which I think is probably the missing piece for almost everyone. So I'm beginning I'm beginning to see just how uh, clever and devious your your cohort is there. Yeah. Uh, and you transitioned us so well into the last thing I wanted to talk about. So uh, the final week of training, uh, in every peaking cycle I've ever developed, I view the final week of training as its own mesocycle. Because your final week of training is truly almost nothing more at this point than behavioral. As a coach and as like in respect to physiology, the last week's training I'm really just like tailoring and fine-tuning the final final adaptation I wanted to drive home. But the work's done. We've been training for ten months. So the only profound impact that I can still leave on Nick as a coach for the final week is truly behavioral. And uh, this is where we're going to start coming back to grip. So uh, Nick and I are obviously in close contact. And I was able to identify where I thought he was in each event and what he needed to finish uh, in his last week's training to give him the mental edge he needed to feel confident for each event. Because obviously each event is different, and as an athlete, each event is almost its own world. Although the six events might be 
similarly from a biomechanical standpoint when you're going out there, they feel completely different. The duck walk could feel like running three miles with like uh, four inches of your lungs, and the deadlift might feel like the best time of your entire life, even though no, they're not entirely too different. So like I said, behavioral was my emphasis. At this point, I lightened up the movement prep for the basically only time. Uh, everything was dropped to 60% of the original volume of movement prep, but in one bout. Just for, like I said, not. I didn't want Nick to lose the ability to work for 12 minutes straight without thinking. Uh, so that was the extent of movement prep. Uh, in the last week, including, uh, the last two weeks, including this one, uh, his plyometrics shifted from what I see as more of a sensory base, which is how I describe the unilateral to bilateral movements, or balancing to a unilateral jump with bilateral landing, or any plyometric of that sort. Because I feel like one of the driving forces behind the adaptation that's positive for those jumps is largely sensory. The ability to produce a high amount of force Eccentrically load your hamstring and correctly land on the same leg. That's uh, a skill and an adaptation that every athlete should have if they're moving any sorts of weights. Um, now they're transitioning to more of a performance, what you would typically see in a peaking cycle as far as plyometrics. So Nick was doing uh, a high velocity scoop toss and depth jumps uh, for his plyometrics here. And then finally, it was mostly single bouts of exercise with few exceptions. So although we did talk about this one big deadlift day on day one, uh, prior to his three event days in a row, we actually did a straight bar deadlift twice. Because we knew there's a max deadlift hold, and I figured the best way to drive home a max deadlift hold is with more deadlifting and make sure you're holding it. So what I guess you could say conjugate when I say he was working at a lighter percentage, for example, he was working at 475 to this day, and he had two sets of three straight bar deadlifts at 475. Mind you, he's pulling well over that. Uh, each rep had five-second squeeze uh, with bare hands. Uh, so Nick had already been under a lot of fatigue, and that squeeze is just grinding home. Uh, that grip-based adaptation that I was talking about, holding on to your gear leg when your hands are killing you, because you did tire flip beforehand. And when you're exhausted, because it's your second day in the row of training events, you still have another day ahead of you. And then, ironically enough, um, as talking about behavioral adaptations, on the final day of training, uh, for the whole training cycle, they came to lightning, slept over my house. And it was pretty emotional when we were training because his last two work sets, uh, were some of the most impressive single bouts of exercise I've seen in my life, to be honest. Um, Nick's last truck pull was just one set, 80 feet, and heavy, as hard as he could. And uh, so Matt Mills thought uh, Nick with the tire was uh, moving a little bit too quick, and he sat on it. And Nick adapted, didn't budge. There was literally no change in slack in the line that Nick was pulling the tire on. And he fought the isometric of Matt Little sitting on a 500 pound tire for a legitimate 12 seconds without moving. Mind you, Nick was pulling on a rope and not moving for 12 seconds straight. Started looking at all out last time. Wow. Uh, and that led Stones, where he had um, his final cluster of training. He was one set, two reps of a 280 stone at 58, 
one rep of a 300 stone 54, one rep of a 330 stone 54, and two reps at a 350 stone 52. Followed by, with short rest, one set of six to 58 at 275. So, this was a motionless team, not only because of how hard Nick was truly working at this point, but Nick was actually crying uh, during his solos, and somehow produced one of the most beautiful solos I've ever seen. So, on that note, I'm going to let Nick review his final week of training. And then uh, I'm going to revisit Grit and ask Nick a question one last time to end the podcast. Yeah, the last week of training was truly special, 100% unforgettable. So every and every session, that, all right, this is it. Like after all these weeks, this is my last day one, this is my last day two. So on everything I did, I just kind of went to failure in the end of it. I mean, by far the ISO truck pull was the craziest thing that I've ever done. Um, that was legitimately, it's like having a harness on your back attached to a brick wall. You're just pulling on a rope to maximal effort. And it's, it's just, it was crazy. Tore my hands a little bit, but it definitely was emotional. It's been such a long journey between qualifying for nationals to going to nationals to making it to the worlds. And at first I wasn't even sure if the worlds was going to happen. Uh, so every session was just kind of like, if that was it, my last rep on everything was just everything I have. I probably don't think I could have gotten a single more rep on anything, to be completely honest. I barely even finished. And um, I think it was the tire flip and the dumbbell, both of those I went to a failure. And I went to a straight failure. And then once that happened, I rested a few more seconds and then went for one more rep on each. And it was incredible. And, uh, I'd say for the truck pull and the harness, that really helps considering I won that event. Um, that was, one of the, that was an incredible event went for me. I was kind of unsure going into it because I wasn't training with a truck, obviously. It's not something that you can mimic in training. So I was unsure going into it. We got a few test runs. Both of my test runs didn't actually feel good at all. When I was at the show, and I was kind of nervous about it, um, the truck, but I was like, all right, whatever, like, I know that, like, those two didn't work, so I kind of stuck around, and I watched another one of the competitors, um, because the, over, the guys from overseas, they actually do truck pull more often than we do in America, and for the amateur competitions, I haven't, I've, I've never done it. So, um, they were more well-versed, and I saw one of the guys just get a good start. And I kind of just like analyze his mechanics because in the end of the day, that's what all this is going to be. And I was like, okay, that's kind of what I need to do, utilize the harness a little more. And once I saw that, I got like, I was like, I'm just going to take that into my turn. I got a really good start. And then from then on, I just ran with it and won that event. And uh, other than that, I also won the deadlift. Well, I tied for first in the deadlift. Um, we set the junior world record with 815, me and Tom Staltman. That was, that was one of the most incredible experiences in my life. I just missed 845. And, uh, other than that, I mean, I didn't even really, those were the two event wins that I had. I just kind of came in the top and the other events and just did what I needed to drive it home. Now, just as a, again, just as a, to, to fill in for the listener, because without seeing this stuff, you know, kind of on a whiteboard, it's a little hard to follow. 
you're literally now granted you you addressed that the volume had been truncated, but you're literally training to kind of a positive plus failure point in your training. What was the rest time between your last event training session and the first day of contest? Did you have any taper in there, or was it essentially just was the contest just essentially another workout? Is what I'm getting at. No, we did take, I think it was, how many days was it? Five. Uh, because towards the, my last training sessions, I was basically stronger than I've ever been, or close to it, but feeling the garbage, the nervous system down the drain. So that's where those five days of, uh, you know, just re- recovering the nervous system, that's when it really tied uh, yeah, and the active recovery work, that's where it really tied everything in together. Um, so, so yeah, uh, these reasons mentioned active recovery work. The way I uh, program active recovery work during his five days off is it's typically once or twice. It is about 80% of the movement prep that they uh, were using in training. And typically, actually, 110 or more percent of their plyometrics. That acts as their resistance training, and then uh, that is actually a conclusion in their training as well. So uh, it's purely for potentiation and somatic purposes. But as I said previously, you can use a peak aerobic adaptation as little as three days. And I also, as I mentioned previously, that ability to produce force and recover was my number one training goal for him. So I was not about to let him lose a peak adaptation because of too much rest. Uh, in those five days off, Nick trained twice. Um, so only three days were truly classified as rest, but that is because Nick has an incredibly high work capacity. Obviously, he's done damage to that. But here, uh, one day of recovery for Nick, say, feels like two for most, uh, what I would call under-trained athletes. Um, and that brings me to my final point. Um, my third training goal for Nick was grit. And I, at the time, I actually quantified it as something I think I, I can get him to train. Whether I was incorrect or correct in that assumption, um, it did affect how I molded this program and how I blended it week to week. Because that is something that those three goals were something I kept in mind every week when I updated it and when I talked. So, uh, the last question I have is, Nick, as an athlete, do you feel that grit is something that you could actually train? Yes, 100%. I mean, especially with the way you develop your programming and the way the way you set your goals. I mean, the way these these training sessions were, it was so hard to do. It was either you're all in or you're all out, pretty much. Every single day tested exactly why you were there. It was a mental battle. Every single, there were so many reps. Every rep, it was, it was, you know, it was a choice to be there. It was a choice to take three hours for a training session and sacrifice all this. And it was all a choice. And you become more and more okay with that choice over time because when you stay still, when you stay steady with something, and when you really keep going with something, the results just happen at one point or another. And I don't know. I just, I just had this deep down feeling that I knew everything was going to be was going to play out how it should be. 
So I 100% think that grit is something that is trainable. It's funny. I've been I've been biting my lip because I really hate to talk into, especially a three-way conversation such as this, quite so much. But as I've mentioned to, to you and uh, and even to the listeners in the past, I've had an awful lot of involvement with Eastern European coaches. And one of the things I've always asked them is, is that much volume really necessary? I mean, I know it worked. I know you did it. But was that really necessary? And a lot of them would say, kind of under their breath with a wink and a nudge, was it absolutely necessary for the physical goal? No. Was it absolutely necessary to weed out the people that really fucking wanted to be there? Yeah, and I think in a roundabout way, you guys are both agreeing that, that that's the same thing, only different. Differently applied. Truthfully, it is. And uh, Nick and I just kind of stumbled upon that, like, through training. Like, uh, personally, as an athlete, uh, mental, I don't want to say commitment, but, like, being able to fully approach something with uh, 100% of my focus, I always struggled with on the day of. And I personally found in my training that when I did that little extra too much volume, it gave me something like kind of unquantifiable for like my own confidence on the day. And uh, like I said, me and Nick have trained together every day for the last, we're going on five years now, or we don't train together now, but for four straight years, we did train together. And uh, that's something we kind of came through together and we kind of melded in something that you could actually program in my opinion. It 100% fall through the program. I mean, competition day, I'll never forget what it felt like for the for the rest of my life. I felt like I was I couldn't have been any more ready for any event for each and every event. I felt like I wanted I wanted it. And it felt so natural. It felt like just it felt like the best training session of my life. I felt like I knew exactly what each rep was going to feel like. And somehow I was able to adapt to the weird dumbbell that I, no one's ever used before and adapt to all these weird things and it couldn't have translated any better from a physical or mental standpoint. Well, now one thing I want to do, um, we, we kind of launched into this conversation with just, you know, who you are and what you were training and then really broke into these weeks and, you know, training sessions and uh, something that the list, there may be a listener, I suspect not with my listening crowd, but just, just to emphasize or to, 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 to highlight, you know, all of this culminated in, and you just won, and you go ahead and name the event. I mean, I, there may be people out there that don't realize the magnitude of what this led you to. Yeah, it was uh, World's Strongest Junior, so 24 and under, World's Strongest, and it was the best experience of my entire life. It really was. So just, you know, for those that aren't completely on board with this, you're literally, there's only a couple of WSM winners, period, ever, all time. You're, you're literally hearing the events that led up to the to creation of one. It's, uh, it's, it's truly a staggering thing. Uh, and then also to consider that, you know, the person you're hearing did this is, is literally a junior athlete. That's even more staggering. Yeah, 22 years old, and it's been such an incredible journey with me and Andy. And this show couldn't have played out any better. It was... Somewhere in Canada at my first international show, but the way the programming led me, I truly felt like I was at home with every event. And they called my name out, and with every with every individual event, it felt like home. It felt like just another day of practice. So we really we really learned a lot. I learned a lot this this whole training cycle. It's been incredible. 
Um, some just random questions I have, having heard you recount that, and not being nearly as uh, you know intimate with your overall training. How much of this training cycle was really the development of strength, and how much was the maintenance of strength, and then the development of all these you know new and interesting skills that you're bringing forward? Were, were you essentially any stronger at the end of the program, or were you just more refined? Um, honestly, I'd say with the weight, everything worked out both. Oh, really? I was, I was stronger and more, I, I felt like I was ready for anything. I felt like they could have thrown any event at me that day, and it wouldn't have mattered. Um, I don't know, I just feel like every, and everything came together. Well, I certainly uh, understand the idea of being perfectly primed and prepped. I mean, that is the, every programmer's pet fantasy. Uh, considerably harder to do than than it sounds, but my my question is like in just the absolute abstract from the beginning of the programming to the end was your say let's just randomly pick an event your deadlift was it actually any higher of a figure was your ability to move load greater or was just your not just I say just that's an ignorant thing to say but in a sense was the major stimulus in terms of more of a skill and repeatability and, and, you know, strength fitness kind of program. More of a skill type of thing, to be honest. I mean, it was being able to do something repetitively so, so perfectly. Because in the end of the day, it's, I mean, you are ready for anything, but it is incredibly specific. So, that's what I was just, I just, it becomes down to such a specific skill, just being good at unilateral movement in the overhead position. Just that's a, that's a skill that I just got better at in general. So that's essentially what I was gathering from the explanations, but I wasn't hearing it said specifically. So there is that you know when people try to emulate you know their favorite pro or they try to emulate their you know their sports hero, there is that concept you have to keep in mind is the person you're hearing, the person that you know you're talking about, is wildly strong from the outset. It's not as if a program such as this is going to make you really strong. It's going to take a really strong person to make them incredibly uh, precise. W- would you agree with that? Yes, one hundred percent. I mean, it wasn't my this wasn't my first big show. This wasn't my first one. Uh, I mean, it was the biggest show ever, but it wasn't my first big training cycle. I mean, I've been training and competing for years, so. Just to see a little bit of an increase every year is a big deal, but this has been, this was just more than ever, this whole prep. I think a testament to Nick's peak was that we spent, at least spent, a lot of years doing our controlled tempo work and very monotonous lifts. So, um, deadlifting twice a week, pressing twice a week, accessory movements, and uh, just driving home, um, consistently perfect reps with a high amount of volume uh, and a moderate intensity each week. Um, prior to this last seven-week phase, I think the heaviest Nick done is like uh, foundational mesocycle was probably about 635 and not much volume there. It was probably a lot in like the 550-600 range. And by a lot, I mean like 30 reps session twice a week. Well, as you you and I both know, it's it's you know re- repetitive work with moderate volume that generates the adaptive responses. Um, 
exposure to 80, 90, and 100 percent are valuable and necessary for peaking, but they're not valuable and necessary for hypertrophy and all the other secondary characteristics. Absolutely. Strongman really is a game of, like, taking what you want to put your coins into and running with it. Because uh, a lot of max strength won't get you too far, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, especially in this the condition of modern strongman, where it's, it's really a, almost fitness first, the way the, the way the events are being designed these days. And, and I say that yeah, with all due difference. I'm not, yeah. I say that with no disrespect because the guys that are doing it are retardedly strong. <laughs> Mr. Hedge is, is, a, is a wonderful example thereof. But I am saying that, you know, strongman over the last 30 years has mutated far more toward the fitness side than the strength side. It has between, like, the medleys, random pairings of, like, overhead medleys, deadlift medleys, and reps in a minute. And then just max events. I mean, my duck walk was just, Matt Stucklock was the very first event, event one, day one. It was a Ooh, that was kind of nasty. That put you in a big, put you in a big hip hamstring hole right to start the day. That's no fun. Yeah, it was by far the most out of all eight events. The duck walk uh, was the absolute worst. It was max distance, and by the end of it, I just felt like I wanted to die. And then uh, after that was dumbbell. And then after that was deadlift. So day one was a lot of fun. That's very cool. Um, yeah, now I have some, I have yeah. some just questions that, um, when you were programming this overall, obviously you had a, a mental template of what you thought it was going to look like and, you know, the number of weeks and, and you had probably an outline for the rough volumes. And, but my question is, how much, I don't know what the word is, I don't want to say auto-regulation because it wouldn't be auto, but how much week-to-week modulation did you actually do to the plan based on feedback from one another? You know, how much, basically I'm asking is how much tinkering was there on the fly? Honestly, almost none. That's what I thought you were going to say. I really thought that's what you were going to say. And it it makes me mad because I, (laughs) that, that kind of relationship where you know someone so well that you could know exactly what's going to be happening at 4 p.m. five weeks from now is uh, is really something to be envious of. That That's not fair. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Nick and I always reveled in the fact that uh, whenever we uh, partake in a program together, it's so cool to be able to pick a day on the calendar that you want to be the strongest you've ever been for a specific event, and you just have it. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Um, did you have any trouble with injuries along the way? Did you have to, uh, you know, adjust anything for, you know, make allowances for injury, or did this really go that smoothly? Um, I mean, it's, it's crazy to say, but there were zero injuries that actually did go that smoothly. Wow. Yeah, oh, it, it honestly couldn't have gone any better in any aspects. Well, that's what, you know, that, that's what the good coaches are paid for. I, uh, I'm 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 proud to say I know one. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Uh, well, that's probably one of the biggest characteristics in successful strongman is just people, they they the really the top champions have a huge resistance to injury. You know, I always want I know that they always want to chalk it up to oh I'm really clever and my programming is really good, but I think at the end of the day, it's one of those, uh, you know, like, 
bodybuilder A, B, and C is, you know, your narrow waist isn't really because of your great training. It's because you were born with a fucking narrow waist. And I think there's a lot of that in strongman is the guys that are really successful just for a quirk of genetics are just really tough fuckers. They're just tough and resistant to injury. And then they can pull off these ridiculous training programs like you laid out. Uh, is that fair, you think? 100%. And honestly, um, all those numerous reps and all the movement prep, all that volume is what kept the injury free. If you can handle that much volume, it, it keeps, it's, it's doing it the right way, doing all the tedious. It's so tedious. It's stuff that oftentimes people look over and people don't do, and that's what leads to injury. But I agree. It's, it's, it's that mental, that tedious, that movement, it's my movement prep is like the warm-up would take 45 minutes almost, and it would just, no one's going to do that, it's weird moves, like people are looking at me doing the quarter squats, and, or the quarter squats, which is one of the, my favorite ones, and it's just, it's tedious, and being able to actually accumulate so much volume and so much work is what's going to actually keep you injury-free, so that's what, that's what was my huge foundation, that's what really helps me, the movement that was probably the most important component, I'd say. I, I suspect you're right, and, uh, and and knowing Mr. Triana and his excruciating detail to that particular subject, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that you're right. That's, yeah. It's fascinating, though, to hear, um, I don't know how to word this, because I really, I really never, ever mean to be disrespectful, uh, but you know, oftentimes, uh, athletes such as yourself, that especially ones that have been so successful, tend to, I don't want to say take undue credit, because you want it's always your credit, but I find it exciting, interesting, and uh, gratifying to find someone like yourself that is so comfortable acknowledging that an enormous amount of your success was actually because of someone else's clever, you know, programming and involvement. Uh, I, I really, I really find that uh, worthy of much more respect than I think most people give it. Oh, I mean, I've been up there without Andy. Really, he's been my, he's my best friend and training partner. So yeah, we spent this is that's what we did in college, all four years. Everybody was else doing another sport or doing whatever they did, and we were going to bed early on Friday nights and smashing training Saturday mornings and everything else in between. So. I really, I've been, I couldn't have done this without him in any sense. That's extraordinary. It's great to see a, a team so so well meshed. That's uh, that's good stuff. It really is. It, it's really uh, you know, and I do this show month after month. You know, every two weeks I do a show, and um, I just don't hear enough of that. I, I don't hear enough people. You know, the whole idea, my idea of this digital age and all these cool and clever, and, and I think wildly underutilized tools, you know, the internet and Facebook and all these things where we can communicate, and yet I don't find any meaningful communication going on. And then it's so refreshing to just talk to the two of you and hear that you talk and you communicate and you've developed this extraordinary rapport with just communication, just just paying attention and talking and how do you feel, how do you look, what's going on make a few notes, and next thing you know, you've got a fucking world champion on your hands. I mean, granted, it's not as easy as that, but yet it kind of is. Yeah, I mean, truly, I tell a lot of clients, uh, all my clients, actually, your relationship with your coach is the limiting factor in your success. 
I could I could have written Nick the greatest program I've ever written three times over, but um, I truly don't think if we didn't have the relationship we had, uh, it just wouldn't have run as smoothly. And I also don't think uh, he would have been able to do on paper what I wrote if we didn't have the relationship we have. Like, there's so much trust between us. Like, I trusted that he would do things the way I put them on the paper so that he would be safe. And he trusted me that, like, no matter what happens, he'd be safe too. And uh, training together on Saturdays, like, throughout the program, like, really was the undefining edge that I think gave Nick in the, uh, the day of was uh, he had his coach there that was able to like, actually help him. And uh, I think that really makes the difference. I have to agree. That, I have to agree that, that that can't be a coincidence that, you know, you're that well familiarized with one another and have that level of trust because um, with any relationship, you know, husband and wife, husband and husband, whatever, whatever you got going on, the, uh, the secret of making any dynamic work is ultimately trust. It just really is. I know that sounds like corny, you know, self-help stuff, but it's not. It's, it's just the way the universe works. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's just, me and him are just the perfect example, but it goes on at any level. For client and uh, coach, you just have that blind faith. And just because I mean, so many times, so many people. If, if Andy gave that same exact protocol to other people that he wasn't close with, they would probably skip half of it, you know. But if you actually have the blind faith, where it's like, okay, I full, I full heartedly, I truly believe that. Whatever he gives me, and I'm gonna do it exactly, and uh, it's gonna work. No, no deviation. It's it's just blind faith, and that that's important between every coach and athlete. Absolutely. Well, let me ask um, you probably the, the the question you probably looked at each other and asked, what's next? Where? I mean, you've been you've been hammering this for almost a year now, nonstop. Obviously, there's gonna be a break somewhere, and then uh, you know, what's what's the future? Of competitive strongman hold for you, and uh, and then all I get, then I guess the question turns over and asks, "What the hell's the programming for that going to look like?" So, uh, as athletes, uh, me and Nick are still in love with what we're doing, and uh, we're certainly not going to stop. We're going to keep pushing ourselves to higher heights, compete at bigger shows, better performances, uh, more professional, just really trying to push the bill as uh, how you should model yourself as an athlete as well. Like, we try to pride ourselves in being good people that are friendly and that create good energy at contests. And we both truly feel that that's part of our success as well, that uh, we find friends in the sport and we try to build each other up. And that's what makes everybody better. That's how you truly have a good time in a strongman show. But um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, within the next few months, you, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more publicized about me and Nick. We're going to be going to our first steps of uh, business together. And uh, I'll leave it at that. But wow, very more. exciting! And uh, that brings me—that brings me to a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. One of my upcoming podcasts, hopefully, will be on the business of strength sports. So uh, perhaps I'll be hitting you up for some some input in that uh, discussion. Absolutely. I mean, I always enjoy my time on the podcast. Do you have any specific uh, events lined out, you know, lined up for the future, or are we going to see any, you know... Uh, uh, Nick and I are actually competing together at uh, 
the Partners competition in uh, Lightning Fitness in December. So we're going to be competing as heavyweights, uh, doing a tandem log, which is going to be hilarious. <laughs> but uh, we're really just going to hop in and have fun. And then uh, I'll be competing in uh, January at a local contest to earn my qualification uh, to return to the USS Nationals. Okay. Okay. Are we going to see him on any uh, any pro events in the future, or we'll see? I mean, technically, I, I haven't earned my pro card through this show, and it's it's all strong as uh, the whole pro thing with the federation. It's it's a lot. In the end of the day, I just want to compete internationally. I want to be around guys that are better than me, and I want to compete at a higher level. A higher level, so. As of right now, I'm taking the time to establish a huge foundational base. A lot of the generalized programming, extremely advanced generalized programming, but uh, I'm going to take a few months off and then I'm going to do something big and I'm not even exactly sure what that's going to be. I just want to keep traveling to new levels. Fair enough. That's certainly uh, certainly your purview and God knows you deserve it and earned it at this point. So yeah, you can compete wherever the hell you like, my friend. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, with the speed of your uh, incline and, you know, the, the pinnacle you've reached in such a short time, uh, I wouldn't think that, uh, you know, a giant show or something like that is outside of your abilities by any stretch. Yeah, no, I really hope to be a good heavyweight contender within the next few years, so we'll see what that takes me. I mean... I'm just every day I'm excited about the programming and where, where it's going to turn to next. And somehow with Andy, it's always it's always going to be something new, always going to be something fresh and different. So I've been I'm just loving every step of the way. Well, Mr. Programming Wizard, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> uh, I just want to drive home that like grit wins championships. Like me and Nick did a lot of other fancy stuff behind the scenes, a lot of science on my end. But um, anyone can do that. Like anyone can read a book and understand how to manipulate technology, and anyone can uh, read a book and understand how to program and teach someone. Did but, you just uh, insult me? That, no, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help it. I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, it's really truthfully like that undefined ability to make things happen in your way, no matter what. So. Don't be afraid to train hard because that's where we found it. That's good stuff. I uh, I agree with everything you said. I'm fascinated by a lot of it. Uh, I have to say with a straight face, a lot of that programming is not the way I would have envisioned it. But now that you lay it out, it's obvious and makes perfect sense. Um, it obviously worked very well. And, uh, you know, again, kind of the big take home is very often the toughest bastard wins. And very often, being the tougher, toughest bastard is a trait that you can develop. Pretty sure that's what Mr. Triana's trying to highlight there is that just like getting bigger, getting stronger, getting faster, you can get meaner. You can get meaner along the way. And meaner is useful in a realm like this. Without a doubt. That is good stuff. All right, gentlemen. Um, real quick, is there anything you want to say to, to the listeners, to the fans, maybe the potential clients? Um, any you know way to get a hold of you? Any way to get more programming wizardry? Uh, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I'll have Twitter. Uh, I'm not the best, I'll be honest, with Facebook and Instagram, but uh, I will get to you. So just feel free to reach out. 
And uh, feel free to reach out to Nick as well. Uh, he can tell you where to reach out, but. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, you know, I have a joint Instagram with my brother. It's Hadge, H-A-D-G-E, underscore brothers. And, uh, he's a light and heavyweight pro stronger. Every time we just post our training videos and he also does programming from Andy. So me and him are always screwing up some of the crazy stuff that Andy has us doing. So. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this whirlwind <laughs> episode of, uh, Sports Performance Radio. I hope to have both of you back. I hope to be able to report more successes and more excitement. And I hope to come back to this business venture at some point in the future. But until then, listeners, this is B. Chavez with Sports Performance Radio. Until next month, stay strong. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio. 